So I will begin. I wanted to welcome everyone here today and welcome everyone as they still emerge and arrive. Today, we are continuing with what we've been doing in January, uh, which is really part of what we're doing these first three months of the year. We're talking about the triple gem, the, the taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And in January this month, we're primarily focused on taking refuge in the Buddha. And what that means, you know? So I'll be, I'll be leading a meditation from now until, roughly now until roughly 11.30. And then I'll give um, a talk. And afterward, there'll be time for discussion. And then at the end, some announcements and offering of metta. So that's how we're structured. And yeah, I'll begin the talk with a, a reading of our community statement. As we enter this space, let us remember that we're entering a sacred space, a space for being in the moment with whatever is present. We recognize our deep connection with one another, where each of us welcome just as we are. Freeing our minds of greed, hatred, and delusion. I think someone else is reading as well. Hold on just a sec. I'm going to mute all. <laughs> there we go. Freeing our minds of greed, hatred, and delusion through this practice offers the opportunity for others to do the same and reduces ignorance and hatred of the world. It is with gratitude that we practice together. So, as I mentioned, what we've been doing in the last three months, well, what we've been doing this month as part of the three-month series is talking about taking refuge in the Buddha. That's this month. And the three-month series that it's part of is taking refuge in the triple gem, in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. So we've heard a little bit. Last, last week, Lyndall gave a wonderful talk on taking refuge in the Buddha, what that really means, and three layers to it, the outer, the outer Buddha, the inner Buddha, and the innermost Buddha. Today, I'd like to divide my talk into two sections related to taking refuge in the Buddha. The first thing I'd like to talk about is taking refuge in the possibility of enlightenment. So as Lyndall mentioned last week, when we talk about taking refuge in the Buddha, 
we are looking to the Buddha not as a deity or a figure necessarily to, to revere in that sense that it means in many other religions, but as an example, example of an enlightened being. So in taking refuge in the Buddha, we're taking refuge in the possibility for our own enlightenment. Um, the take I want to give on that is, is really my own personal struggle with this. And my, my hope is that it helps others who, who don't connect very easily uh, with the idea of taking refuge in the Buddha. Uh, the second part of what I'd like to talk about today is another aspect of taking refuge in the Buddha, which is taking refuge in the qualities of the Buddha. So that's how um, that's how I'll divide it. And, and to make sense of, of these two sections, I, I have an analogy that keeps repeating in my head. It goes like this. So imagine you're in a rowboat in the middle of the ocean. You know, you'd like to be somewhere different, but you don't even know if there's anything different from where you are, all you know is that you're in this rowboat and all around you is the vast wild ocean. So now imagine that you conceive of the possibility that maybe somewhere out there, there is land, there's a shore. So in my mind, in this analogy, I, I liken this possibility to the possibility of enlightenment. You know, it's like this maybe land that's out there. And so that's kind of related to the first part of my talk today. Maybe there's some land out there, but we don't know. We haven't seen it. And then, so let's assume that you have some belief in the possibility that there's a shore. So then how do you get there? You know, if you're just going to take your paddle and, you, you know, okay, I have a little bit of belief that I can get somewhere from this rowboat and this ocean. You could paddle in just any direction, right? And, you know, you don't know which direction you're going in. Land is probably, you might be going away from land. You might be going towards it. You might be paddling in circles. So it'd be great to have a lighthouse <laughs> or something like that that shows you the direction that you want to go in. So I liken the lighthouse to the qualities of the Buddha that give us direction. So that's the second part of my talk today. So the first is, is there land at all? And the second is, is there a lighthouse? You know, what is, what's our lighthouse? That's the way I think of this. So I don't know if that helps anyone, but those are the two parts of my thought, my talk. So part one, I'll, I'll make, I'll talk about this in a personal way. So for me, there's something central to my own nature about being uncommitted. Maybe it's central. I don't know if it's central. I feel like it's something that I, I live with. And when I say uncommitted, I mean that, I, you know, it, I mean not being yoked to anything, whether it's a religion, you know, a central philosophy, even a set of core values. When people ask me what my core values are, I kind of, I kind of shrink away from that question. You know, for a bunch of, for a long time, you know, when you had to fill out this, what's your political party? I was like, I don't want to do that. Can I put nothing? Can I put in? I just didn't want to be associated with these things. You know, when I was, when I was in college, I really wanted to get a tattoo uh, because I liked the look of a tattoo, but I, I couldn't get a tattoo. I found it really hard to get a tattoo because that would mean that there's something 
that I'm stuck with for the rest of my life that I'm committing to saying this is something I believe. This is a, a phrase, a picture, an image that I'm stuck with that I, you know, I have to say now I, now I feel this is a good thing. And 40 years from now, I also think this is a good thing. There was nothing that I could do. That. So I didn't get a tattoo. So this uncommittedness, I think fundamentally comes from something wholesome. Um, it's a desire not to be attached to anything that's impermanent, you know, and you know, pretty much everything is fundamentally impermanent, right? So I, that, that's where it's coming from for me. So, so words like devotion, belief, faith, these are hard words for me. They all, you know, sort of invoke this yoking of myself to a particular entity or ideology. So how does that tie us to, to this topic? Well, as Lindell discussed last week, taking refuge in the Buddha does not have to be about devotion to the Buddha can be about taking the comfort in his example of enlightenment. And the Buddha very, you know, his message was, if he can do it, you can do it, right? He wouldn't be teaching us these practices. Uh, He wouldn't be teaching his followers these practices. Uh, He reminded them if he didn't think that they could do it. So, you know, if he can do it, maybe I can. That's the message I suppose I'm supposed to take from that. And, you know, there are things that help with that, right? The Buddha is a pretty relatable person, you know, not maybe his circumstances and riches, but his story is full of all the wrong turns he took in his life. He sought liberation and other fates and other religions, other practices, punishing his body, so on. You know, he's a very human figure. He makes mistakes like we do. But to me, to tell me that I can definitely become enlightened, Free from suffering forevermore, it's a, it's a hard thing for me to believe. You know? And this is termed doubt, right? This is one of the hindrances. We know this. And so it can be helpful to say, all right, this is doubt. I'm working with doubt. I can step back and think of that. But to me, a part of me responds, you know, doubt in an unfounded premise. I don't know that I can become enlightened, me personally. That's a reasonable response. Right? You know, what if someone told me that the only way to salvation was to believe in the gospel of the flying spaghetti monster? And I said, well, I'm not sure about that. And they responded, well, that's doubt. Well, yeah, I, I would think that's a reasonable doubt. Right? You know, how, what do we know? And of course, this is different from a flying spaghetti monster. How is it different? Well, we're all sitting here because something in this path has called to us. You know, maybe it's the possibility of enlightenment. Maybe that's something that uh, we believe in and uh, we want to move towards. Or maybe it's simple. Maybe it's something, maybe we gave meditation or mindfulness a shot at some point in our lives and we found that it helped us, uh, helped us let go and find some peace, maybe some surrender, some opening. So we decided to go a little further with it. Maybe we've decided we'll just keep going further as long as it continues to serve us, right? That That is often where I am, you know? Often that's where I am. I'm like, well, I've been doing this. I get something out of it. Let me keep going, right? But also, in other moments, I think, well, what, what if it is possible, possible to completely let go? And to find a permanent and lasting 
end to the suffering. So that's where I am personally. I, I can't take refuge in the certainty of enlightenment, because I'm not certain of it. But I can find hope, hope in the possibility that it might exist even for me. So that's a smaller thing than I often hear in these talks, right? You know, for me, it's, it's a hope. Maybe this is possible, you know. But, you know, so taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in this example of enlightenment, and having a glimmer of hope that it just might be possible for me. But also, the mere glimmer of this hope is actually a very powerful refuge. How many of us in our adult lives began thinking that we might, we just might become absolutely famous for our brilliant contributions to the world? Did anyone start with that? Is that just me? You know? Yeah, okay. And whether or not we reached that goal, right, it pushed us forward, kept us moving on whatever paths we took throughout the world. Or maybe at some point in your life you bought a lottery ticket. That's an even crazier hope, right? But it's these things. They keep us moving on. They keep us living our lives. They keep us putting one foot in front of the other because who knows what the future could bring, right? That glimmer of possibility is very powerful for us. So hope alone provides some energy, some virya in this practice for moving forward and pursuing this path. You know, and it's fueled by our lived experience, right? For many of us, that is our practice, right? We have a practice, maybe a meditation or mindfulness practice. And we found that we really are a little bit more peaceful, a little bit more Buddha-like when we practice, at least sometimes. So in my analogy of being in a boat, a rowboat in the, in the ocean, this is kind of the energy to move forward, to pick up the paddle and, and move in some direction, right? To not just sit there thinking it's hopeless, to say, all right, I'm going to go, I'm going to go somewhere. I'm going to move forward. But again, if we're moving forward blindly, we're going to take a lot of wrong turns. And that's okay. We do that on our way to getting somewhere. But we can take a little bit more from this refuge in the Buddha, I think. The Buddha, as I mentioned earlier, can also be a lighthouse, something that illuminates the path where we end up. And that lighthouse, to me, is taking refuge in the qualities of the Buddha. This is often mentioned as another form of taking refuge. So what are these qualities? Um, well, one way of thinking about them is the paramis, the perfections, the things that the Buddha perfected in himself that we can look to as an example. We may not be there, but we, we can look to these examples of ways to be as as things that we can aspire to. And in a sense, that's sort of seeing in the distance, you know, the, the, the lighthouse, what the sense of where land is might be, what it's like when you're on land, you know? And 
those qualities, just to list them. Generosity, morality, morality of the renunciation, wisdom, energy, determination, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving kindness, and equanimity. So I, I find it hard personally to keep all of these in my head at all times. So I like to just pick one or two to reflect on at a given time. So on a recent day, last weekend, I had a lot of guests coming over and many of them I'd never met. And so, you know, the way I, I, I get, you know, I get tense in advance of things like this. It was a lot of guests. I have a pretty small place and I have eight sets of silverware in total, because I don't usually need more than eight sets of silverware. And I had, there were 15 people coming up. So there's a certain amount of surrender I needed to have. And the things that I looked to, to kind of get there were, were the qualities of generosity and equanimity. They weren't really my own in that moment, but I knew that they were possible. So I was looking at, you know, the examples I'd seen in my life generosity and equanimity. The mo they could have been the moments in myself when I remembered feeling those things, the sort of ease and flow and ability to be with things. They might have been those qualities I'd seen in other people. Right? We can look to these qualities in the Buddha, in the stories of the Buddha's life, and in the other Buddhas, right? the Buddha nature of those we know. Equanimity with what happens. Ugh, in my example, this was the inevitable stains on the furniture, the unexpected delays, the last minute changes, requests that were being texted to me. Um, you know, uh, you know, I think at the last minute there was like a, a food, you know, a new food constraint or a, a dietary constraint. I was like, okay, do we have enough to work with this? Equanimity, things don't go as planned. Can we just be with all the things arising? Can it be okay? And equanimity also, in this case, for my dinner, uh, for my brunch, it was a brunch party, was also sort of seeing the joy equally, the joy of connection and the opportunity of brunch, this community, the laughter and the warmth that was coming from being in a group of people and not just focusing on, is everything okay? Does everyone have everything they need? Have all the boxes been checked? Is the furniture getting spilled on? I don't know. It's everything, right? Equanimity. And generosity, right? It's not just sharing what was mine in these moments, but being, it's also, we can be generous with other people and about other people. It's being generous with the qualities of others, honoring their Buddha natures as they walk through the door. Not, especially there were people I didn't know, not making limiting assumptions about the people who were coming into the door, the things they were saying and offering of themselves. On another day, if I'm feeling despondent, maybe the energy and determination that inspire from the Buddha, this persistence to keep seeking after finding so many dead ends, right? You know, the Buddha didn't have any guides the way we have this practice and, this, and the Dhamma and the Buddha and the Sangha has these guides uh, to find a shore or to even know that it existed when he was in his rowboat. 
So there, there's a story along with this. There's a story that goes that all of history has gone in phases where the teachings, these teachings, the Dhamma, are available, and then fades, and then they fade, and then there are phases where the teachings are not available. And one story, one such story is that Siddhartha, the, the historical Buddha that we think of, is the 25th Buddha. Now, I, I don't know, I take this with a grain of salt. <laughs> you know, but the idea here is that, he, you know, there were other enlightened beings and other Buddhas. And when this, the teachings have faded and they're not in the world, there is always some person, some Buddha, who is alone in that rowboat, having no idea whether there was land. And who had to have the determination to plunge forward in a direction, then another direction, then another direction, not knowing that there was something like enlightenment, right? Not having an example before them. And, you know, so you can just imagine the determination it took to find all these dead ends, to try one practice, then another, and to continue and persist with this belief. And it's really a source of inspiration, or it can be to me. So some stories of the life of the Buddha are a wonderful example to evoke these qualities. You know, there are multiple stories of people becoming angry at the Buddha, slapping or even spitting at the Buddha and, you know, how he responds with generosity and wisdom and patience. There's one particular story I'll relate very quickly because it also shows a certain backbone that I really like seeing uh, in the Buddha. So this story, it's about the Buddha one day going to a village where he'd never been before. He knocks on the door of one of the houses in the village with his begging bowl, begging for alms. And after some time, a person comes out. He becomes furious to see a monk with a begging bowl in his hand. And he starts abusing the Buddha. You know, you look fit enough to work. You know, instead you've come here and you want food without working. And this person goes on abusing him, and the Buddha stands still, listening without any reaction, waiting for them to finish. At some point, they pause to catch their breath, and they ask, Why are you standing here like a stone? You can say something. And the Buddha says, If an offer has come, and it is not accepted, to whom does it belong? The man is puzzled. He says, I didn't offer you anything. Just just get out. Just get out of my place. And the Buddha gently replies, Father, from the time I met you, you have been offering me what you have. And then the guy realizes that the Buddha is referring to these abuses that he's been hurling at him. And he asks him, So your question is, if the offer is not accepted, to whom does it belong? The Buddha just smiles back. And that's the story. You know, there's some people add on to the end of it, but it's this idea that, you know, the, instead of directly engaging, 
with this challenge of a question, the Buddha is just stepping back and seeing, okay, this is the energy this person is bringing, and I'm not accepting it. <laughs> I'm not taking this energy. And so it's just reflected back to this person. So who does this belong to? This is yours. <laughs> this is not mine. Right? So there's patience in this. There is determination. There is generosity. There's also a kind of backbone. Right? These stories, and if we reflect on stories like this of the Buddha, this one being a favorite of mine, it's a wonderful way to be in the world, isn't it? So this is a lighthouse. This is an example of a path. We know that there's a person who's reached land and is there. That's what it looks like when they reach land. They are like this. They behave like this. This is their story. It's not a clear path. This isn't the Dhamma in its, in its unfolding. But it does help us to recognize what it's like to be there already. Right? What enlightenment is like to be there already. It's like a lighthouse. So these help us paddle in the right direction. Right? You know, it doesn't need to be quite as hard for us as it was for the Buddha, right? without any direction. We have a little bit of direction. We can take comfort in this. We have some guidance. We have an example of what a person might be who, who is enlightened. We have many other examples, perhaps, in our lives. We can look to the Buddha natures of others. We can see the good acts of other people and take from them what we can and next month, we'll talk a little bit more about what I relate also to, you know, this analogy of being in a rowboat. Next month, we'll talk about the Dhamma, just to connect this month to next month. You know, that's kind of like our roadmap, <laughs> right? For getting from here to wherever we see that lighthouse. That's how I think of that part. All right. So, in the next part of this, we'll have a bit of time to, uh, to meet us in small groups and discuss. And you can discuss whatever has come up for you um, in this talk. You can also discuss, if you want a specific prompt, are there examples of Buddha nature that you take into your own life? They could be the examples from the actual Buddha, the literal Buddha or stories, or are there people or acts that you've seen in your life that stick with you, that maybe have stuck with you through your life, that give you a sense of what you want to embody and what that goal looks like, where, where you're headed. So with that, I'll give everyone an opportunity if they don't want to participate in these small breakout groups, which will be groups of three, four people, um, to, to bow out today if, if you want to. You can also always come back at the end if you want to stay away for this and be part of the group discussion at the end. Uh, you'd be welcome back. But right now, if you don't want to be part of it, um, you, can, you can either say goodbye or just bow out for the moment. And after that, I'll take who's left and I'll, I'll put us into groups. So, we have some time now for any comments, questions, thoughts.
that came up in your groups or otherwise that you want to share in the larger circle. And oh, I should probably put up the purpose. So you can either, maybe the best way to do it, you could raise your hand uh, by by clicking on reactions at the bottom of your your Zoom and click on raise hand, or you can you can unmute yourself too. I think that if that isn't working for you, then unmuting is okay. I see Lillian and Nikhil. Do you want to go ahead? Sure. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you for the story about uh, the character who says, um, if something is offered but not accepted to him, does it belong? Um, and I just felt that that shed an interesting light on interactions in my life, both where I'm the one offering something that maybe doesn't need to be offered, and then also where I'm making the choice not to receive something. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I love both sides of that story. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Lillian. Yeah, yeah, that's what I like about it too. It, it does cause me to reflect on my own behavior too. And I, I just love the, the redirection of that conversation. You know, I, I feel like I would have gone in this direction of like trying to explain the concept of begging for alms and like, you know, <laughs> and it was just a lovely direction to take it to sort of step back and see the energy that was coming from that instead. Yeah. Claire. Thank you so much for the talk. It was, um, it was really helpful for me. And I want to especially thank Gene in our small group where he talked about taking refuge in Sangha. And I've been, I've been struggling this week trying to figure out where do I take refuge? Where is my refuge? And I guess, I think it just felt so presumptive of me to say in the Sangha, but he said it, he came right out and said it. And I, and I could, it resonated with me like, yeah, that's, that is also where I take refuge. And it's, um, it draws me and I wouldn't miss it unless I really have to. And it's just such a wonderful, wonderful gift to realize. So thank you all. And thank you, Jane. Yeah, that's wonderful. How many people can relate to that? Taking refuge in the Sangha. Oh, wow. That's all the hands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm very much there with you. There, it's a powerful refuge. It's a powerful refuge. And I love, um, you, were, were you there last, were you there for the question that Tim gave on Monday, Claire? Is that what, oh, okay. So it's just a happy coincidence. Uh, Tim offered this homework after his last session and it was on, it asked you, okay, when do you, I think it was something like this. I'm paraphrasing or maybe getting it wrong, but he asked about when do you, when do you notice yourself taking refuge and is it in the Buddha, the Dhamma, or the Sangha? Like when do you, when does it come up for you? And to notice that in your life as you move through your week. Um, so it's, it's, you reminded me of that when you, when you talked about taking refuge in the Sangha. Like it's interesting to see how different ones of these pop up at different times for me. Um, but taking refuge in the Sangha, that's, that's a big one. I feel like that comes to me first. That's the first thing I think of. 
Gene. Oh, thank you. Um, in a true confession, and especially to you, Arv, I uh, apologize for muttering during the community statement. Um, if it was a distraction, uh, my apologies. What I need for you to understand is that um, that community statement is so powerful that I asked the LDLs for a copy of it so that I could do my own little ceremony and join in the statement. Uh, typically, I try to keep the microphone off, but uh, today, uh, that's just the way I am today. And you're welcome to be just the way you are. Uh, what does this have to do with taking refuge in the Buddha? I'm not sure that I see anything there. If you do, please enlighten me. Uh, but I just wanted to, uh, to let you know that, um, I do this each week. It's that powerful, that important, uh, to me in my practice. So if it happens again, just say, uh, it's just Gene being Gene. Uh-huh. So thank you. Thank you, Gene. Oh my goodness. It's funny. I, I had three thoughts, uh, when, for the first was I thought that it was an echo on <laughs> microphone at first that was occurring, and but then I kept thinking that voice sounds so much better than mine. <laughs> it's like wow. There's a, how do I come? Do I really come across with that kind of gravitas when I speak? You know, do, you know I feel like, like that. That sounds like a way better version of me. This can't be a microphone echo. And then it dawned on me. I didn't know it was you, actually, Gene. I just I was like, someone, oh, it's someone else who's got their microphone unmuted. It just happens to be saying it right at the same time I was. So that was my first thought. But then my next was, wow, how wonderful that someone is saying it out loud <laughs> at the same time and repeating this phrase, these phrases. Um, that's such a powerful way of bringing them in and to hear that you do that every week. Wow. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that because I, I uh, it, it, it adds depth and richness to that reflection. It's um, my version of a Sims chanting session. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, and my third thought was, wouldn't it be cool if we could all sort of say it together at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, and, and hear each other say it. But I have seen that go wrong <laughs> when people have, I've had, I've had a zoom call where people tried to sing together and that did not go well. <laughs> so, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Gene. Thanks for sharing. We have time for more. Oh, there's Sean and Bruce. Hi everybody. So nice to see everybody's faces on Sunday morning. Um, Well, during your talk, I was thinking that I relate uh, more to taking refuge in the the Dharma. Well, the Sangha too, but the Dharma. um, But then because of that, I'm also taking refuge in the Buddha because that's where the Dharma came from. So it's kind of like taking refuge in the Buddha a little bit by default at this point because I do have all those things that you were talking about. Well, a little bit different version. I don't want to be tied to 
any particular being or entity because um, I've done that. But yeah, I it's it the the Dharma is easy for me to take refuge in because that's the path that I'm following. And um, I just remember who created that path and it was the Buddha. So, yeah. You know, I also remembered when I was six, I lived in Japan and my, my parents, of course, took, took my brother and I all around to see the, you know, historical sites and, and we went and I don't really know geographically where any of these things are, but we went to the site of the giant Buddha. That's what I remember. See, I see Lauren shaking her head. I mean, this statue of the Buddha was like humongous and you could go inside of it and go up these steps. And I don't know if you can still do that and walk inside the Buddha. And I thought that was just the coolest thing. I mean, I was in awe. But I think it was more more than I was in awe of walking inside this gargantuous Buddha. And so I just said, oh, I, and there were souvenirs. And so I said, oh, I, I, can I have one of the little Buddhas? Because they saw, you know, and I, oh, no, that's just, a, you know, that's just a piece of junk. You know, no, 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 I have to have one of the little Buddhas. So my parents bought me the little Buddha. And that little Buddha sat on my shelf in my room where I had my prize horse statues that huh. I also worshipped. <laughs> and I think there was something to that, you know. I mean, I was really in awe of this being sitting there. Huge. Yeah, maybe there's a little, there's a seed that got a little sprout of water at that time. Damn. I'll just let it grow. Yeah. Thank you for saying that so beautifully, Sean. I that re- I can really relate to what you just said. Um I had the same thought sequence too when I was preparing the thought, the talk, which is it's easier for me to connect with the sangha and the first way I thought of connecting with the Buddha was as or not with the sangha with the dhamma. And and saying that, you know, the Buddha is the creator of this Dhamma. This is the reason why we have this was the first way I could relate to connecting and taking refuge in the Buddha. But then what you said about the statue, I realized there's something like that in me too. There's something like that, that looks at an example. And even if I'm really resistant to sort of veneration of beings, um, there's something there in it for me, right? So everything you said, (laughs) thank you. I can relay. We have Lauren and then Janet. We have a couple minutes. Um, So let's see. Well, let's start with Lauren. I think Lauren's next. And then hopefully we'll have time for Janet too. Oh, Lauren, you're muted. Yeah. I'll just say quickly that uh, what I was going to say is kind of an echo of what Sean just said. However, um, I I pretty much only think of the Buddha as this great, cool human being that just was amazing. And so um, just what he went through in the night of awakening and putting all that together 
So I don't have a, and I wasn't raised Catholic, so I don't have a pushback against um, um, that. Um, so that's why I think all of us are so safe and so supportive and just looking out at each other because we're following, you know, the path of the Buddha that he, he gave us an example. He gave us the Four Noble Truths, and I can trust that the people here are trying their best to to be that way, and it just makes it the sangha so safe and so inspiring. Because also he said, "Ehi pasiko, see for yourself." So we just every every single Sunday, people share they're in, you know, what their their truth is, how they're working with it, and it is just so alive that. Um, I'm very grateful that the Buddha existed and then that all of you are there practicing and sharing. And uh, yeah, just wanted to say that. Thank you, Lauren. Janet. I was just going to say that I also saw the big Buddha in Kamakura when I was seven and I lived in Japan for for five years. And uh, although I didn't question my Christian values at the time, uh, I, I came to, up with this conclusion that uh, nobody quite understood God, but we all thought the same things were good and, and were good values because it seemed like my Buddhist friends and my uh, Jewish friends and all of us shared more than uh, than was an argumentative thing. And so I, but I think it kind of primed me to be attracted to uh, the Buddhism, to grow up in a culture with a lot of Buddhists. Yeah, lovely. That's a nice connection you have that you also saw that. Thank you, Janet, for sharing that background and that, that way of seeing uh, the, cult, the Buddhist culture around which you were surrounded. All right. I wanted to move on to a couple of announcements.